I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where it's hard to know who's more crazy, us or Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 2, which begins with Max staring off into the distance, and it ends with the Interceptor 2.0 kicking up dirt as Max makes his escape. With us once again is the man who has probably drawn more penguins than he cares to comment on, Mark Sexton. <laughs> Bastard. Thank you for reminding me. I'm just going to a fetal position right now and won't be out for the next half an hour. Yeah, I wanted to say on Monday, and I'll say it right here because I just brought it up. I may have my problems with Happy Feet, but that movie was gorgeous to look at. It really was. If you had a black and white version with no dialogue track, which honestly that movie is 90% black and white to begin with because penguins, but... If you had a black and chrome version of Happy Feet, I would probably really enjoy it because it wouldn't be a weird amalgamation of March of the Penguins meets a jukebox musical. I, th- I think I'll take that as a compliment. I think, yeah. yes, still got penguins in it. So, you know, I, I've got problems with it. <laughs> <laughs> and, now, and sorry about and sorry about Happy Feet number two. Sorry. sorry you know, we have yet to watch Happy Feet number two. As I said earlier, I do a lot of number twos. <laughs> Sorry, I have to make that joke again. Apologies, apologies. But you had a pretty big hand in those movies. IMDb says that you weren't just the story artist, you were also the production designer of that first movie. That's a pretty lofty title. Yeah, I got to be production designer and I don't know how the hell that happened. But, and that was straight, literally straight after we finished Fury Road, the storyboarding on that. So I went straight from post-apocalyptic nihilism and destruction and death into Dancing Penguins. That seems appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Tell you what, though, the original version of Happy Feet, the original script, was pretty bleak. (laughs) Pretty bleak. Yeah, so... Anyway, you didn't get that one, but it would have been nice to have seen that one. It would have been a lot less singing and dancing. All of this penguin talk, I feel like it transitions us nicely into the first lines of dialogue that we hear this minute with Max saying it was hard to know who was more crazy, me or everyone else. The first thing I notice about Max, because here we are seeing him, he's standing next to his rebuilt Interceptor, which is impressive enough, considering that we saw the first Interceptor get blown up, and then we go through all of Beyond Thunderdome, Interceptor-less, and then first thing, right off the top, boom, there it is again. And that's amazing. But the first thing I noticed about Max is not only does he have his interceptor back, but he also has his leg brace back. He didn't have that running around Barter Town or the crack in the earth or anything like that. He just had a, I think a towel wrapped around it or something like that. But here he's got his kit back. So he spent the last indiscriminate amount of time really rebuilding his image, working on number one. Uh, For once, except for his hair. That definitely feels like a carryover theme from Thunderdome. In that movie as well, we start out with this Max who has a very specific aesthetic, and that includes a lot of hair, just a lot, a lot of hair. And thank goodness in both movies, it gets taken care of. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. He's also gone back to wearing 
the headscarf covering as opposed to some sort of crocodile Dundee hat. He's never been one for wide-brimmed hats, so he's gone back to the scarf. But Mm -hmm. another detail that we actually see when we get a close-up on his head, but he's got a headset around his neck, which kind of reminds me of Gecko. Yeah, you don't think it's meant to be like he pulled it off of Gecko as a... Well, certainly not. Memorial. Mark. But did he? Did he? I mean, well, since we never saw the gecko scene, we'll never know. Well, Mark, as you were putting together the storyboard, you had a vision for how we get first introduced to Max. And I think from what I've seen, it's visually very similar with him standing there next to the interceptor. But in the original idea, the radio was involved, right? To a certain degree. I'm trying to remember how the radio was involved. I think a big part of that actually was Tom Hardy brought that one to the table. In fact, I don't know if you noticed throughout the film, he's wearing this little earbud piece with a little microphone. And I think the idea was that he thinks the voices are talking to him through that. And I'm not quite sure whether Tom Hardy's idea was that it blocked the voices out or allowed the voices to talk to him. Hmm. Whatever the case, it drove George and Margie nuts. So he kept on trying to cut it out. But uh, yes, he did have a pair of headphones. Got to admit, I'm not quite sure exactly why he had. I heard a story once, and I can't remember where I read it, but the idea was that Max would be sitting there next to the interceptor, calling over the radio, trying to get a hold of MFP dispatch, sitting there just calling over and over again, you know, Max to MFP, MFP dispatch, something like that, as a way to illustrate that he's gotten to the point where he's been alone for a long time. I think from memory in the storyboarding when we did it, it was actually literally just Max talking to himself. Mm-hmm. And the idea with it, with the original boarding was that you sat on Max for ages and he was, this is when it was going to be Mel Gibson. And he was sitting, not standing, rocking backwards and forwards slowly and talking to himself. And you couldn't hear what he was saying. And you slowly got closer to him. As you got slowly closer and closer, you could hear what he was saying. And it was just gibberish. This idea that he'd gone so far that he wasn't actually speaking real words anymore, and that he'd gone that far. It was really off the rails in this case. But that was in 1999 to 2001. So, you know, their right. stories evolve. <laughs> Max mentions it's hard to know who was more crazy. And because it's fun to do this, I went over to Miriam Webster and I'm like, how many definitions of crazy are there? And which one would be most entertaining to think that he's talking about? So obviously, crazy is, of course, deranged and insane and all of this other stuff. But I learned today that Charles Dickens used the word crazy to describe something full of cracks or flaws. Crazed glass. Like a cabin or a room with a bunch of holes in the walls. The room is crazy because it's got all of these little gaps, which I love because it's Dickens, for one thing. So you get a little bit of a taste of literature there. But also, I feel like it also applies to people that have these gaps in their lives Like Max has a huge wife and child shaped gap in his life that he's never really been able to fill. And based on the visions or hallucinations that he has throughout this movie, he is holding on to other experiences similar to losing Jesse and what's his face? Sprague. Sprague. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Sprague's been forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) That, That type of experience just keeps getting repeated in his life. The people he can't save. Mm -hmm. And these voices, they creep in, 
in this shot where we're coming up behind him. There's a lizard there too, which I love the inclusion of the lizard because it's just an example of how the poisoned earth is starting to mutate the creatures and being such a big fan of the fallout series. I love the idea of mutated creatures, but we start to hear those little voices. We get this small girl saying, hello, where are you? And then other voices coming in and Max is just like, "Ugh, here they come again. As if it's a bout of tinnitus. Cause I'll be sitting there and my tinnitus will sometimes kick in and I'll get that whistling come in and I'm like, Oh Lord, here it comes again worming their way into the black matter of his brain. And they're very accusing. Well, they're pleading, but also accusing the idea that, you know, help us. And then you promised to help us. And Max is sitting there like, you're not real. They can't touch me, but here they come again. He's having a really great time. And he's so positive about it. (laughs) Yeah. He says, they can't touch me. They're long dead. So what I want to talk about now is the little girl's voice because we're going to catch sight of her on Friday. But because we're hearing her for the first time, I wanted to talk about her a little bit because I have my suspicion that she is in the Mad Max comic books. Is that right? Maybe, possibly, yes. Because I'm pretty sure the little girl that we hear and see is Glory from the Mad Max story. I think it was three issues that you put out? Four in total, two of them being Max. Max one and two. Max's story was split in two, and the other two stories were for a combination of Nux and Immortan Joe, and then one for Furiosa specifically. Yes, and then an awesome one about the warring. Still my favorite. So that book that you have there, Rick, is that all of them put together? Yep, so I went and got the, um, I think it's called, is it the trade paperback version when they combine them all into one? Yeah, that's it. That's That's the double dipping Buy them all single, and then buy the, uh, <laughs> the buy the uh, the next one, the book, and then you know the bastards who are doing the comics then put another story in that you couldn't get in the comics, and you swear and curse and buy it. <laughs> Throughout each one of the issues, there is this overarching narrative of a history man telling younglings about what happened before, you know, fulfilling his purpose as a history man, and for the final two issues. He talks about Max specifically, and it's laid out in no uncertain terms that this is the same guy. Like I said on Monday, he's not a feral kid that grew up. He's not a waiting one that decided to emulate his hero and wander out into the wastes. This is the Max who lost a wife and child. This is the Max who helped people escape and then was left behind with a chanker full of dust. And he's also the guy that was left to wander out into the desert after Tina Turner spared him for some reason. (laughs) Uh, yes, it's the same Max. And then very specifically, George gave me the task of linking Fury Road to the first three films with some interesting little changes. But yeah, he wanted to make sure that we uh, had a direct link between the first Mad Max through to Fury Road so we knew it was the same character. Didn't exactly tell me how he wanted it to be done. I think he had this idea that I would just do each of the stories in about six or seven pages and mm-hmm. And just do it that way, but it didn't quite work out that way. George doesn't do comics, although interestingly enough, the pitch document for the very first Mad Max was a single page comic book that George wrote and drew himself. But yeah, the comics were very much supposed to be a this is Max and trying to rationalize a few things, possibly how he got his car back, <laughs> as well as just trying to figure out what the order of these stories were. Mm-hmm. Not that everybody likes that, but anyway, that was the idea. I don't 
necessarily want to go page by page through the comic because I do want people to go out and get their own copy, ideally, or just track down some way to just throw money at Mark directly. Either way, I'd be happy. But the gist of the story is that following Beyond Thunderdome, Max sets about rebuilding the Interceptor. That becomes his task. Yes. I think the idea was it's almost part of him, you know, that he doesn't exist to a certain degree without it. So, in fact, we kind of teased out this idea that he might have been doing it since Road Warrior. He started to rebuild it then, but it was a very hard hard build to make and yeah. to find and earn parts. And then, interestingly enough, that idea comes out of back in the 80s after Thunderdome, George was actually considering doing a television series about Max where he was actually literally going out each week in an episode, doing jobs for people in a post-apocalyptic wasteland in order, I can't say that story, can't say that word anymore, um, in order to actually get bits of the Interceptor back to be able to rebuild the vehicle. In the splash page that you did covering Beyond Thunderdome, it says right up at the top that after Road Warrior, he set about taking odd jobs here and there, being an assassin, a bodyguard, all of this stuff, always on his terms and always in return for car parts, which he used to rebuild the Interceptor. So we're meant to believe that in that camel car that he was driving around at the beginning of Thunderdomes were bits and bobs to put together a new Interceptor, which means that the wagon was probably a lot more valuable than Auntie and Master Blaster let on because it was probably full of car parts. Or at least it was until Sally Ann started dumping it all over the desert. <laughs> yeah, she picked up that ninja block and threw it very far. <laughs> I think that helps explain a lot about Max in that movie in Thunderdome. And I think when we were talking about him taking this job of being a covert assassin, I think we talked about it didn't seem like this was his first time doing something like this. So here we have the introduction of that idea that He'd been working odd jobs for a while since yeah. Road Warrior, trying to earn back bits and pieces. That also helps explain why he was so adamant about getting his stuff back. I think we also talked about that. Like, well, you can just go out and get more stuff. I know stuff in this world is life or death, but he did it once. He can do it again. Well, if the camel truck was filled with the bits and pieces that he had already accumulated, then that would be very, very valuable to him personally. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark, you start us off in the comic with Max and he's driving off this little tuk-tuk vehicle and he's going to Gastown. So we get to be introduced with this other point of the triumvirate that we're going to meet over the course of this movie because in Gastown has been established a new Thunderdome. And I love what you did here. Because the guy in charge of that Thunderdome is none other than one of my favorite characters from Beyond Thunderdome, Dr. Dealgood. And he's older, he's scarred up, he's lost his hair, but it's so obviously him. And I love that he's in there because it's such a direct connection. Yeah, I think he's a, the prime example of if you've got a great idea, then don't let it go. Dr. Dealgood just found a new place to export the idea and found a way of making it work for a new ruler, as it were. That was just a bit of fun. These stories are done very much with George in the loop, but he didn't necessarily get terribly specific about bits like this. So we had fun throwing in Easter eggs and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So Dr. Deal good being one of them. And George is very intent on there being a Thunderdome in this story. Um, so 
as you say, George is also good at holding on to ideas. Through a series of events, Max ends up winning the fight. It's not the exact same type of Thunderdome setup. They change things up in Gastown. But along the way, Max meets this woman who ends up helping him. It's a very quick meeting and it's very quick help, but he ends up beating this champion. And so as Max wanders away from Gastown, he's like, just give me my engine and I'll go. And he is followed back to his camp where he's got a, I'd say like 80, 90% completed interceptor sitting there underneath that little tent of his. He's got the body and, you know, he's capable enough of putting the stuff together himself or with help, finding people to help him. But yeah, the engine, the engine block, all that sort of stuff might be beyond his ken. I don't think we ever really figured out how that was going to work because we didn't have to. Of all the times not to have Barry kicking around <laughs> to help him out with that. Now that is a side character, a bit of a deep dive. We haven't talked about Barry in a long time. <laughs> Kick in the gut, Max. But basically, Max is tailed back to his hideout. He's attacked by the people who were the friends of the people he beat. He's tied to the ground. He's stabbed. And he's basically left to die. And it's the woman that he meets in the Thunderdome that shows up and saves his life. And then she's like, hey, I saved your life. I need you to do this for me. And so she tasks him with finding her daughter. So this woman's name is, I believe, Hope. Right? I think that's the idea. Yeah, I was trying to remember who was who. It's been a while. So I can't remember who was Hope and who was Glory. Yeah, the mother that's, is that's, Hope they're, and the daughter they're, they're is Glory. There you go. They're George's names. <laughs> and so Hope brings Max to a landscape, which is where the Buzzards, which is the faction that ends up attacking Furiosa, they are the same type of people that kidnapped Hope's daughter, Glory. But Julia, I'm going to pass this book over to you. So you can see the splash page that Mark drew that shows the territory that the buzzards live underneath. And tell me if that looks like anything to you. You don't want more of stuff like that. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I see it. <laughs> okay, so they're in Sydney. Mm-hmm. So does that mean this whole thing takes place on like the eastern half, eastern portion of the continent? Theoretically. I think George is trying to tie stuff down to actual geography. Maybe... You may play a little bit with reality, as directors <laughs> want to do, but it seemed appropriate to actually throw that in there. It's a callback to the first story in this collection, which is the story of a Morton Joe and where he came from. So it's actually almost exactly the same angle of where a Morton Joe leaves Sydney at the beginning of the fall, but it's also a little bit of a deep dive into the end of Thunderdome. Yeah, the end of Thunderdome is the first thing I think of when I'm looking at this picture, and it's one of the things I wanted to bring up now that we have you on here. So if the buzzards are living underneath Sydney, what does that mean for the waiting ones who were, I'm assuming, living above Sydney? Mm. Oh, you're going to be coy about this, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I came on to be coy. Well... Actually, interesting. We didn't talk about that with George, but in my head, there may have been a little bit of an altercation at some point or another, or ongoing altercations between both groups. One's a food source, and one is not. Mm. And uh, yes, the buzzards exist underground. There was this, I cannot remember the name of the genetic disease uh, that we had, but it was uh, an inability to deal with natural light. Mm to the point at which the uh, people that the buzzards were descended from have actually had to go underground. That's why they're wrapped up in 
plastic and cloth and stuff like that and they have the mask on because they break out in sores and all sorts of stuff when they're exposed to natural light. Some of that was possibly pushing reality a little in terms of how it actually works, but, you know, that was the idea. And, of course, because their food sources are getting tighter and tighter because they're in Sydney living off salvage, anything that comes along is fair game. And uh, the waiting ones might have provided some of that game, perhaps, but not necessarily all of it. And who knows? They may still be going. We didn't get into that too far. I can think that one of the reasons that the waiting ones lit the beacons every night to draw travelers into the city, sure, they could be trying to bolster their own forces or they're trying to lure people in as a trap as a way to appease the buzzards living below the city. Like the buzzards find the waiting ones and the waiting ones think, well, we would rather not be eaten by uh, what is a cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. And so we will draw people to the city so that they get eaten instead of us. I don't want to say that Savannah would think of that, but... <laughs> Savannah's prime directive is to keep those kids alive. I can imagine Master thinking of that. Oh, that's right, because Elvis Ford is there. Yes, he is. For at least a couple of years in between when the movie ends and when the epilogue begins. So maybe he thought of that or maybe he was one of the first to go missing. I don't know. I guess that's an idea for another comic book you could make. (laughs) (laughs) Someone suggested that to me actually not very long ago. It's like, can we see that story, please? Um, Don't know whether George really would want to do that one, but there's a tendency to just go, oh yeah, okay. (laughs) Would be be slightly bleak. So what Max does is he goes into the city, he finds glory, and then he gets glory out and in doing so manages to regain his interceptor which has been taken the buzzards did a really good job of installing his engine so now it's complete and you can surmise exactly what happens at the end of the comic based on the fact that these are now voices in max's head tormenting him yeah it doesn't go well no (laughs) poor old max so am i Close to the mark when I say that the little girl that we see in the movie is the little girl that Max could not save in the end. I think that's pretty much the idea. There is a slight complication with the whole thing in that when doing Fury Road and uh, George was trying to get other cyber projects happening and where there was talk about doing an anime, it was the story of Furiosa, and there was a computer game, and that was going to be a story of what happened to Max before Fury Road, and that part of the game was going to be the whole story of hope and glory and how that played out. But um, as George, due to the trials and tribulations of trying to make the film and working with the studio, he lost the game. The Mm. game was taken away from him and given to another group. Uh, Blizzard. Was it Blizzard? I think it was Uh, Avalanche. Avalanche. That's it. Yeah. Uh, It was something to do with snow. Yeah. Um, Totally appropriate to to, uh, post-apocalyptic wasteland. But they took it and they kind of changed the story somewhat. And so this is George's way of trying to get some of that story back in the direction that he wanted it to go. Yeah. But there are other complications that I can't go into to say that this may be a way of telling the story, but not necessarily the only way of telling the story. I played through that video game on the Xbox and the moment that I knew that things were not terribly in canon 
when you're watching the opening cutscene to the Mad Max video game and they show Max before the apocalypse hanging out with his wife and his daughter in their swimming pool. And I'm like, okay, first of all, <laughs> their apartment is way too small to have a swimming pool. That, that no way. Second of all, right next to a beach for a start. <laughs> why would they have a swimming pool right next to the beach? I don't know. That sounds really Australian. <laughs> <laughs> but secondly, of course, in his flashback, it's his wife and his daughter who is like eight, nine years old. And it's like, first of all, hey, second of all, no, he had a little boy that was under two years old, under 18 months is what we yeah. specifically said. Yeah. So I knew things weren't going to be exactly on the ball for that. But I do appreciate how much the video game goes into um, exploring the idea of Morton Joe's third son, Scrotus. He really, Seriously? Yes. Okay, let, let me, I'm going to, okay, let me see if Scrotus. I can hold the book right next to the microphone so people can hear me uh, flipping my pages here because. Into uh, the Morton Joe story. Here we go. This is, uh, there's no page numbers in the uh, trade paperback, but here, top panel. Mark tells us that Joe had three sons. Do you want to read those out just so? Scrotus, three. Rictus Erectus, and Corpus Colossum? Colossum. Col- I think it's, it's supposed to be a play on Colossus. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Colossum. And Corpus Colossum. I'm curious who chose those names. <laughs> well, I'll take the fifth. No, 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 it wasn't me. It was George. It was all George. Um, <laughs> that about everything. That about everything. Actually, no, no, these three characters are very much out of the mind of George. Interestingly enough, I think between us writing and putting this comic book together and the film being finished, Corpus Colossum got changed to Corpus Colossus, mm-hmm. just to show how much George is still flexible right at the end. <laughs> um, but Scrotus was... I've never played the computer game either. Um, I've, I've, I haven't, I've never seen it. I've never read I've never played it. So I have no idea how they use these characters, but I think Scrotus is in it. And I think it's vaguely similar design to what we've used in the comic. Mm-hmm. But tell you what, when we storyboarded the film, these three characters did not exist. There was no idea of a Morton Joe. He was just called the Immortan at that time. Mm-hmm. A Morton Joe having any viable kids at all so the idea that he had three sons didn't exist. So that was a change that came after we storyboarded the film. Mm-hmm. And for the better as well, by the way. We'll get into it when they actually show up, but I love the inclusion of Rictus and Corpus. One is extremely dumb, but also a mountain of meat and muscle. And the other one is more brilliant, but he's also severely limited in his physical ability. And I love the dichotomy of those two. And I, I think it's probably a good idea that Scrotus wasn't included in the final movie just because he feels a little too similar to a Morton Joe for me. Like he's the main bad guy of the video game and you end up facing off against him over the course of the game. And he is a really striking figure. And so if you play the game, sure, there are some lore things that don't line up and you can definitely take a look at the, comic and you're like okay i could see where they were coming from when they were working with bits and bobs and pieces and uh, shem herman does a great video on youtube about the video game and the history of it so definitely go out and check out mad max bible for that one but when you're introduced to scrotus in the video game and he's this huge mean guy and you're like oh yeah but he's just the son 
of the Immortan Joe and you're like, okay, well, already I know that Joe is going to be bigger and badder and meaner because if this is his kid, he's got to be worse. So is Scrotus in the movie at all? No. Is there any kind of explanation for that? I think at this point, it's just the video game. The fact that he is the main boss of the video game. And of course, because it's a video game, I don't feel like I'm spoiling this, but at the end of a video game, you beat the boss and he's the boss of the video game. So that's why he's not around. Okay. So was Scrotus a viable heir, which is a huge motivation that Immortan Joe has during this movie is to have a viable heir. No, he had the same sort of, I think it's a respiratory issue that yes. Rick just has and Joe has. And I think, I think there's a bit of that. And I think also a few mental problems, perhaps. Yeah. Scrotus was especially vicious. And oh, okay. so he lacked the temperament to be the ruler over Joe's entire empire. He might have been a little too humongous, not enough auntie. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think I've said it in the past that I look at Immortan Joe and he seems like the perfect balance between Humongous and Auntie mm -hmm. when you're talking about previous bad guys. And of course, played by Toe Cutter. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to screw with people. Take the villains from the first three movies, throw them into a blender, hit mix, and just pour Immortan Joe right out there. <laughs> nice. Why don't we cast Bruce Spencer in another role? That would have been awesome. Oh, that would have been amazing. Start making me think of what role he could have filled. Bullet Farmer. Oh, the guy that was cast as the Bullet Farmer already reminds me a little bit of Bruce Spence. So, yeah, that would have been super easy to slip him in there. Oh, yeah. I can't remember, but I have a sneaking suspicion when the initial designs for the character got done, I suspect Brendan McCarthy actually did draw Bruce Spence or something that looked very similar. <laughs> supposed to be very tall and very thin and uh, kind of fit that uh, physiognomy pretty well. So, yeah, could have worked. Maybe <laughs> Brendan was trying to influence George visually as much as he possibly could. Didn't work, though. But, yeah, he got almost got there get him into one of those situations where he's racking his brain, trying to think, oh, who could play this role? Who could play this role? And he just keeps coming back to Bruce. <laughs> yes, yes. George is a visual director. He does think visually, so that's actually a viable way of making George think something. Just <laughs> start hiding pictures of Bruce Spence everywhere. He opens <laughs> a cabinet to get some coffee, and there's Bruce Spence. He opens a drawer to grab a knife. There's Bruce Spence. Opens his car door to go home at the end of the day. There's a little picture of Bruce Spence on the seat. <laughs> and then when Bruce Spence doesn't get cast, there's a, that's low. <laughs> Dishonest. Yeah. Dishonest low. Interestingly enough, though, um, I think Steve Cutter, who was um, cast in the role, was terrified of guns. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Had never fought and never fired a gun in his life and hated it. Now, I'm looking at his IMDb page, and it's Richard Carter. Richard Carter, there you go. Yep. Sorry, Richard. He was in Happy Feet playing a guy named Barry. I can't remember which what? penguin was Barry. Barry. Oh, he was an elephant seal. Oh, okay. That's right, because the elephant seals had the Australian accents. Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Oh, there's so many things in those movies. We keep, we keep bouncing back to it. I know... Mark, we've got you here, so that's one reason we keep bouncing back to Happy Feet. But I feel like even if you work, you probably still end up doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, probably. 
I mean, it is a traumatic experience. So you have to work through your system. So yeah, keep, <laughs> keep, keep working through the trauma. It's good. It's good. I'm here to help. Talk right. it out. I'm glad I'm lying down. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back into the minute, because we've spent a fair amount of time talking about the comic book, and now I'm ready to talk about this lizard again. As Max is standing over this precipice, this slope, the lizard runs up behind him and these voices are just getting more and more persistent and he slams his heel down on top of this lizard, crunching it very nicely and the voices stop. And I love that so much. Nice. So good. Very, very, very silly lizard. Very (laughs) ill-advised. You can see why there's not many animals left on the earth. It's that stupid. I'm wondering about the crushing of the lizard and the instant death and where exactly his heel lands that would instantly kill the lizard. His common sense says if you want to instantly kill something, you crush it on the neck or the head, but he has two necks and two heads. So did he instantly kill one half of it, but not the other? And how long can the lizard survive if the other head is dead? Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing. I don't think he killed that lizard right out. I think he caught it on the heel of his boot and it stuck enough so that he could swing his foot up in some sort of line dancing do do type maneuver so that he can grab it and throw it into his mouth. Because when he turns his head, that little body is still wriggling. It's still fighting. It does not want to get eaten. Oh, no, yeah. I thought it was just the flopping of being chewed. But no, its little feet are going. It's like an inspirational poster. Never stop fighting, even if you're half inside the mouth of a wastelander. Oh, my gosh. In fact, this is an awesome new story. Experience of uh, Fury Road through the lizard. You can hear it, can't see it. My second concern is this animal is clearly mutated, probably from radioactivity. Mm -hmm. I don't think Max should be eating it. I can't imagine that it's going to do him any favors. This is where I get to be a smartass and probably get then shot down by every one of your (laughs) listeners who's just going, what the hell is he talking about? But before I got into film, I did a PhD in genetics. Oh. Which was idiotic of me and just shows Mm -hmm. that I'm a very, very slow learner. I would say that despite the fact that that lizard has got clearly altered DNA or damaged DNA as a result of all the toxins in the ground and in the atmosphere, he'd probably be okay to eat in as much as anything else is okay to eat in that wasteland. So there's no worse. Let's just say that. Else. Let's just say Max has got a very robust, um, <laughs> a very robust digestive system, and uh, he can get he can get rid of all those toxins pretty well. Well, not only does Max have a rather robust constitution, but as we learned in the third movie, he has a supernatural aspect to him. He is a fairy princess. Yes, he is. And a fairy princess can eat whatever she wants Mm -hmm. because she's magic. That's the number one defense I have as to why we're looking at Tom Hardy now instead of Mel Gibson, because he's a fairy princess and he can do whatever he wants. I love that you've got that stuck in your craw. Yeah, because before we watched Thunderdome, I was never clued into that phrase. And just the fact that he used that to be sassy back to Master Blaster with, (laughs) I love the way he did it. And I want everyone to remember that Max was like, sure, me fairy princess. (laughs) It is worthy of remembrance. It's a t-shirt that I need to wear while I'm working with George. Max, fairy princess. (laughs) Remind him every time. And I think uh, I'm all for that. In fact, I think uh, that's another line of comics 
Mad Max Fury Princess. <laughs> I'm going for it. It's awesome. Sounds awesome. Kids version, of course. There you go. That kid friendly. That's the kid friendly kid book version with the cartoony looking visuals of Max with the big eyes and the little bandana around his arm. Max Rakitansky, Wasteland Fairy Princess. Oh, Excellent. Max Fury Princess. Yeah. If Warner Brothers ever gets bought out by Disney or something like that, you could throw Max into the Tinkerbell canon. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy. I'm so happy right now. My daughter is going to be delighted. Mad Max is a Disney princess. <laughs> <laughs> as they will wait for all of those uh, purchases to go through. I think Disney, as we're recording this in January, we don't release it until March, but I think they just finalized their purchase of 25th Century Fox. 25th Century Fox? Or however many centuries Fox. 20th Century Fox? I don't know. I might have been watching too much future. I like twenty. I, I do like twenty fifth century. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, They're slowly by in the future. Little by little, you know, Walt Disney's corporation is picking through all of entertainment to become the king of that mountain pile. Mm. I'm just looking forward to the xenomorph appearing at the, in Wreck It Ralph three. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that we can probably attribute to Max's supernatural heritage is as he's standing on this ridge, he turns his head suddenly because he hears something. And then with the roar of a motor engine sound, he sweeps back to the door of the interceptor and starts swiping things up to throw into the car. And I love that the sound effect is used here because it's Max moving for the first time and he sounds like a car. And I know that in the grand design of things, you're probably supposed to say, okay, yeah, these are just the engines approaching from the distance and all of that. But it attaches Max inherently to the vehicle that we hear the engine rev when Max moves. I agree. I actually didn't mentally attach those noises to the oncoming group of adversaries. Yeah. Uh, We watched this movie the other day in preparation for beginning recording, and I actually had not seen it since the theater. So I didn't exactly remember step-by-step what happens. I didn't know that there was a coming group. So when they crest the ridge and come into view, it was a surprise to me. I had no idea they were coming. And if you're watching it minute by minute, it's not surprising that you don't think of it because as we're watching this minute too, Max gets in, fires up the interceptor. We get to see the blower start spinning and then the car drives over the ridge in the last second. And the way this minute ends, that's it. Max just drives away and it cuts off. <laughs> so it was nice when the minutes cut off in really great places. Mm-hmm. Yes. Could have been just a second later. Second later would have been awesome. But anyway, yes. I had never picked up on the fact that the engine sound was going over Max moving. But it makes total sense. And it's exactly as you say, it is the idea that he's so linked to the car that they are one and the same. And the idea is he gets going, car engine starts, and then he starts the engine, which sounds terrible, by the way, because it's supposed to be clapped out and broken. Yeah. It takes off. You can tell that this is sort of a weekend warrior project for him, more so than a road warrior project for him. Ha, 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 ha. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well... To my knowledge, now I haven't read the comics, but to my knowledge, Max is not a mechanic. He can, you know, he can change the oil, stuff like that. But, you know, repairing an engine seems out of his purview. Maintaining 
a machine is different than building a machine from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And you read in the comic that Max has help installing that V8 engine. He doesn't do it on his own. So prior to the engine, was he doing stuff on his own? I think so. Mechanic work. Building. Okay. Yeah. Bit of both, perhaps. Bit of this, bit of that. Getting someone to help him. Yeah. Not necessarily on his own. We do see him tinkering with the engine at the beginning of the original Mad Max. Yes. When we first see him, he's tinkering with the engine. But, yeah, I don't think he's a skilled mechanic in any way, shape, or form. Knows what he's doing vaguely. Now, I don't know how much acting Nicolathoris is doing these days, but it would have been pretty funny to see him pop up in the Immortan's garage somewhere with that big old nose of his. Uh, well, he's actually in the comics. He's actually the history man. Wait, seriously? Yep, that's him. He's the history man. He was the co-writer on the comics. That's um, right. And so I thought he made a perfect history man. And there was actually, at one point in the storyboarding, we actually had the history man appeared in the film, which is something you can talk about some other time. And Nico was going to play him. Oh, that would have been perfect. Would have been absolutely perfect. But anyway. Now that you tell me, I can actually see it in the drawing. And I love that that detail is there. I didn't think of it at the first. And now that you pointed out, it's hard not to see it. (laughs) Easter eggs upon Easter eggs. We love it. It would have tickled me to put Nico Lathuris and Hugh Keysburn in a scene together. Because I would have wanted Hugh to reach out for just one more grab. (laughs) on that (laughs) Just one more. (laughs) <laughs> for old time's sake <laughs> uh, would have been lovely anyway that seems to be our time for the day so be sure to come back on Friday when it turns out that the voices are the least of Max's worries as some painted up maniacs arrive on the scene to start throwing around explosives like we're in some sort of apocalypse or something so find out how that shakes out in our Friday episode The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Bautista of DanielBautista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 2 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.